and welcome to the Blast from Our Past podcast, where we talk about nostalgic movies from our younger days, TV shows, and do some recastings. I'm Adam. I'm John. And today we've got a very special holiday episode where we review Home Alone, the kids' classic from 1990, Rudolph the Red-Nosed Reindeer, the stop-motion Christmas classic from 1964, and then also recast Home Alone using actors of today. One new thing that I kind of wanted to do, I am actually stealing this from another podcast. I'm stealing this from the Star Trek The Next Conversation podcast that does this every time they talk about new episodes, but I thought it was a good thing to maybe include for us. Just talk about a couple of things that happened in 1990, just so you can kind of get a uh, feel for what was going on in the world when especially the movies came out. So specifically, I'm just going to talk about 1990. A couple things of note, the Oscar for Best Picture went to Dances with Wolves. Also, Joe Pesci, who we'll be talking about in a little bit, won Best Supporting Actor for a little movie called Goodfellas, the Billboard year-end Hot 100 single of 1990 was Hold On by Wilson Phillips. A couple more things of note that happened in 1990, the invasion of Kuwait by Iraq. So we went to war that year. It was our first war with Iraq. And probably the most important thing that happened in 1990, Chuck Norris became the first Westerner in all of documented Taekwondo history to be awarded the rank of 8th degree black belt. Badass. All right. Thank you for that moment in history, John. Let's go ahead and get started with our review of Home Alone. This movie was produced by John Hughes, who I think anyone who grew up in the 80s knows him as maybe the best writer and director of those kind of family-style films. He did National Lampoon's Vacation, 16 Candles, Breakfast Club, Uncle Buck, which is a personal favorite of mine. Just so many, like, 80s fantastic films came from the mind of John Hughes. Home Alone was directed by Chris Columbus, who directed the first two Harry Potter movies. Some people know the two worst Harry Potter movies. Uh, (laughs) He also directed Adventures in Babysitting, Mrs. Doubtfire, and he wrote Goonies and Gremlins. So Chris Columbus has a lot of fantastic, nostalgic films associated with him as well. A lot of nerd cred. Yes. The movie really helped blow up Macaulay Culkin, who was the star, little young Kevin McAllister. And some of the other people that starred are Joe Pesci, Daniel Stern, Catherine O'Hara, and John Hurd. And also a small bit part by uh, John Candy. Oh, yes. Yeah. And John Candy, which is always nice to see John Candy in, in anything. anything. I forgot how much John Candy was in this film. Yeah. So that was kind of good to see. But yeah, him with Macaulay Culkin again, you know, reunited from Uncle Buck days made me happy. <laughs> <laughs> so we start at the McAllister home and it's just kind of chaos is going on. We see a cop there. Joe Pesci is a cop. They are pretty much packing and running around getting ready for a big trip to France. It's kind of we find out through context. You know, we get little seeds planted, which I think are awesome. There's some good storytelling here. The dad mentions Kevin's micro machines. He mentions like just a couple other things. And immediately when I heard micro machines, I was like, fuck yeah. (laughs) Fuck yeah. I owned micro machines. This is a 90s toy movie. This makes me happy. That just was like my eyes lit up a little bit when I heard them mention micro machines. So yeah, the family's just kind of going crazy. They've all gathered here to Kevin's house basically to set off to France 
dance together, we kind of find out that Kevin is the outcast of the family. He's the black sheep, one of the younger ones. He's different. He's just different. His brother is a grade-A asshole bully. We find that about him. His cousin likes to wet the bed, who was played by his actual brother, Kieran McCulkin. But yeah, I saw him immediately. I was like, oh, that's another McCulkin. I can tell. They all have a distinctive look about them. You can tell a McCulkin from (laughs) from the rest. You can always pick out a McCulkin. (laughs) But yeah, we get some other little like exposition things in this time. We see Old Man Marley, the brother Buzz, sets up the story of Old Man Marley, and he is this creepy old neighbor. You ever heard of South Bend Shovel Slayer? No. That's him. Back in 58, he murdered his whole family and half the people on his block with the snow shovel. Just good, like, kids' scary yeah, stories. Kind of, I mean, reminds me a little bit of, like, the Sandlot kind of scary yeah. stories that Squints tells. From the imagination of children and mm-hmm. how everything gets blown up and distorted. Yeah, absolutely. We still see the cop is kind of pulling out, asking a bunch of different questions. He's trying to get an adult to talk to him. Of course, rewatching it now, I mean, we all know that Joe Pesci is the thief. I'm sure you would see it. I mean, that's obvious in the, the trailer of the film. Right. But I thought that was a really ingenious method, honestly, <laughs> to pose as a cop and make these very safe suburban people feel we're getting protected by the cops while we're out of town and Joe Pesci's just scouting to see who's not going to be in town. Right. Find out about the weaknesses of the house or what kind of security systems they have. Chance to sort of scout out the house, see if they have an alarm system and people are stupid. Yeah, people (laughs) are. Yes, exactly. So don't trust cops. They're all going (laughs) to thieve your house when you're gone in Christmas. Set up micro machines under the door and you'll be safe. (laughs) But we get a little thing here where um, the cop, Joe Pesci, smiles at Kevin and we see his gold tooth. I wonder if that's going to come back to us. If but... the writer is good, it will. <laughs> yes. <laughs> and is written by John Hughes, so we know it will. And one thing I found out about John Hughes, he also did uh, 16 Candles and stuff yes. like that, right? Yes. Apparently, when he writes, he writes quickly. Like, he wrote 16 Candles in four days. Oh, wow. He pours himself into it and will write. He writes all of his screenplays very quickly. Mm-hmm. That's well, impressive. Apparently, what he did for, like, Plane, Trains, and Automobiles, and I, I only know this from having recently listened to the Cinephiles mm-hmm. podcast, he would sort of write a script, and then he would go back after he'd cast it and tool the part oh. towards the actors, which is what he did with Steve Martin and John Candy in Planes, Trains, and Automobiles. That's very cool. He would go in and tool the the rest of the script towards the personality and the strengths and weaknesses of the actor playing the part. There we go. For all of our writer friends out there, that is a very intelligent way to do it. I like that. So we're back and the family is all still kind of getting ready. They're having dinner. They got 10 pizzas for 15 people, which is way too much pizza. Right. (laughs) I did the math because they said they were getting 10 pizzas, $12 each, but that one time later they said they had 15 people there. (laughs) which is a ridiculous amount of pizza. So Kevin gets grounded. He knocks over a shit ton of milk. He's just kind of being the brat. He's a little bit little bit of a brat. Kind of always being in the way. Yeah, and... exactly. And no one really seems to like him. His uncles, I can't remember that one uncle's name, but that guy was an ass to him. And he would call, yeah. he would call him like these mean names. Yeah. If I said something to your son like that, you would have turned to me and smacked me upside my head. Or you would have been like, Adam, what the fuck are you saying to my son? Yeah, probably, probably something like that. Yeah. Like, don't don't talk to him like that is probably. Right. Yeah. Oh, well, didn't like the uncle. <laughs> <laughs> so Kevin gets grounded and he gets put up into the attic to basically be there for the the rest of the night and he kind of has this whole you know i'm sick of my family i'm i want you all to just go away and never come back and i don't want to see you ever again Catherine o'hara is basically like i hope you don't mean that and kevin's like fuck yeah i mean that <laughs> 
So it becomes night. The wind blows off a branch onto a power line. And we see there's a power outage. And that means everybody's clocks with the alarms are going off because they had to leave right at 8 to make sure that they catch their flight to Paris. So they wake up at some time that's definitely not early enough. And so now it's all madness going on. You get a a fun little shot, uh, a sped up shot of the main hallway of the house. The family are just running around. It's it's time remapped to be faster than normal. And it's just kind of cute. I think it works well in that instance. Yeah. They're all getting ready, but in their hubbub, they didn't realize that Kevin hasn't come downstairs. He's still sleeping. There is a neighbor kid who kind of came in to just check on random shit. He gets accidentally counted by Kevin's cousin as Kevin. And so the mother, Catherine O'Hara, not checking her own children on her own, just assuming (laughs) that the cousins all had everybody there, which I find a little bit strange. John, you travel with your kids a lot. Yes. Have you ever not basically had to pack for them? No. Yeah. Also, I always check to make... Now, granted, I only have two kids, (laughs) but even when we all pack together, we all always kind of make sure uh, everyone is responsible for their own children. Yeah, yeah, that should be the case. You don't put like a 15-year-old cousin in charge yeah, exactly. of your son. Yes, especially if you're part of a whole group. Yeah, she's a bit of a bad parent. And well, <laughs> not just her, the dad is too. Don't want to give him any leeway. <laughs> So the parents are pretty bad, but they get everybody into the van that they rented, they hired to come take them to the airport. I noticed one of Kevin's cousins was the older Pete from Pete and Pete. I saw him and I immediately recognized him (laughs) as the older kid from Pete and Pete. And actually, funny enough, just the other day at work, I was watching Mighty Ducks on my (laughs) lunch break and Danny Tamborelli's in there. And I was like, oh, sweet. In two days, I got both Pete and Pete in two different (laughs) movies. So anyway, that made me happy. Also, just some lack of continuity here. Even in 1990, I don't think airplanes would have just accepted, here's a shit ton of tickets and then they all just run into the plane. Like, yeah, this is where the movie (laughs) fails. (laughs) This is where the writing fails, because I don't think even at that time, the ticket taker at the airport would have just accepted them to go through. I mean, the one they they would have had to go through security with the ticket check, which actually, I guess maybe at that time you didn't have to do that. I don't think there was a ticket check. Yeah, there wasn't that ticket check. Because anyone could go through security. Yes, but... When you get onto the plane, every person, single person, had to have a ticket. And I think that was always the case. And it wasn't just, here, throw a shit ton in your face. And how come, I am certain that they would have gotten seats near each other. Yes. How come the cousin or the brother who would have been sitting next to Kevin didn't notice that the seat was empty the entire fucking time and didn't talk to mom or dad? That's really how much they cared about Kevin. (laughs) Yeah, okay. They didn't notice. So they get on the plane, the whole family does, the parents are in first class, and the kids are in coach and that's kind of how they semi tell the <laughs> the audience that this is how he's getting missed uh-huh. on this entire flight even though you would think you know a brother and sister would notice it but fuck it <laughs> they don't know or they don't care about kevin enough right a good line when uh catherine o'hara basically says hope we didn't forget anything and then we cut to kevin wakes up and there is no one in the house hello hello is this a joke I made my family disappear. I made my family disappear. Almost a little kid's dream. That's exactly what he thinks happened. He thinks he is this powerful enough kid or God listened to him or something. (laughs) And now his family is gone forever. And... Maybe he's in his home alone. And we really find out, to me, he's got a rich-ass family. Like, <laughs> they have a yeah. monstrous house. Yeah. They are incredibly well-to-do. So, um, good for you, kid. <laughs> I don't know what to say to that <laughs> other than a little, little bit of jealousy. <laughs> we 
get down there. Kevin's just kind of like wandering around trying to like see if anyone's around. He goes down to the basement and we get this weird fucking scene and I didn't really get it and I didn't think it was necessary even today of the weird furnace scene. Oh yeah. Where we first see the furnace acting on its own and going crazy. It's kind of like this is Kevin's fear. But this is the only time that we're really like seeing inside the mind of Kevin. Like it, it yeah. only happens with this furnace. It doesn't happen with anything else. It yeah. doesn't make much sense other than hey kids are sometimes scared of basements or shit like that. Yeah. It didn't seem necessary to me. Also for such a wealthy family they had such a shitty basement. Yeah. <laughs> Yeah, it was a non-finished basement, but it kind of looks like our grandmother's basement in Iowa, <laughs> yeah. uh, which is a kind of a shitty unfinished basement. <laughs> so yeah, Kevin's kind of wandering around. He goes into his brother's room. He's just happy that uh, everyone's gone and he's going through everybody's stuff. He goes through Buzz's chest of shit and he sees Buzz's girlfriend in a picture and he, and he gives a woof and like, oh, what a dog kind of puts her away. <laughs> Funny side story is the picture of Buzz's girlfriend is not a girl. It's actually a boy dressed up as a girl because either John Hughes or Chris Columbus thought it would be too mean to have Kevin's reactions like that be to an actual female. Oh. So they're at least gentlemen here. And so <laughs> next time you look at this unfortunate looking female of Buzz's love interest is not actually a female. It's just a guy dressed a, up like a woman. Yes, a boy dressed up as a woman. Um, <laughs> To avoid being, you know, that much of jerks. So, okay. so. okay. I guess that's noble. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, it's a funny little side story. So after a bit, Kevin just kind of starts doing kid things and he's eating a big bowl of ice cream for breakfast and watching bad adult movies, bad violent movies, just kind of being a kid. He's reading a Playboy. It's kind of funny little moment where he throws it away. Ooh, naked women or something like that. He's too young for it. We get a lot of setup of things like the gangster movie that keeps coming back. I tell you what I'm going to give you, snakes. I'm going to give you to the count of ten to get your ugly, yellow, no-good keister off my property before I pump your guts full of lead. All right, Johnny, I'm sorry. I'm going. One, two, ten. Keep the change, you filthy animal. Which, incidentally, that was not a real movie that was created specifically for Home Alone. Oh, so yeah, I would have guessed that they actually picked like in just an old movie that they could have... No, all of that oh. footage was shot for this movie. Okay, very cool. We then cut back to the plane. We cut back to the plane a couple times in this, this different kind of sequence of Kevin going through stuff and bringing that back. And eventually we cut back to the plane and the mother finally realizes that Kevin was the thing that she forgot. Kevin! She had this nagging feeling that something was missing. And then she realized that, of course, by this time, they're about halfway to Paris or something <laughs> like that. So they can't just turn the plane around. We kind of, yeah, cut back to Kevin in the house. We get, I mean, a lot of silly kid stuff. It's fun. You know, you kind of wish you were Kevin in that first little moment. Being a kid, he sleds down the stairs and sleds straight out of the house. I mean, silly stuff. Here, after like that sledding scene, we get our first shot of Harry and Marv together, finally. These are our two antagonists. They're kind of staking the place out. Basically, the, the entire street, they are checking out and seeing, you know, what they're going to take. Kevin watching How the Grinch Stole Christmas, and then he hears the burglars, Harry and Marv, kind of coming in or trying to get in, and so he flips on the lights, and they kind of scatter because they thought it was good. People were gone, but apparently someone is still there. They kind of establish that this house is the house that they really want to get to because you would think if they realize someone is there, smart burglars would just 
just be like, fuck it, we're not going to hit that house, even if it is just a kid there or whatever. But they established this is like their white whale. This is going to like be their big score because <laughs> right. of what Joe Pesci saw when he was in there. Kevin kind of goes out to confront the robbers. He decides he's the man of the house and he's going to step out and he's going to let the burglars know, you know, this is his house to protect. And he runs into old man Marley. We keep establishing that this old man is here right after he sees old man Marley runs into the house. We get that classic shot of where he runs up the stairs, runs to the camera, screams, turns around and runs away. When I think of home alone shots, <laughs> right. like that's the home alone shot. And it's a good shot. They do this multiple times where they kind of break the fourth wall, kind of stare into the camera a couple different times, particularly on like those kind of shots. Yeah. Which is fine. Doesn't bother me. I mean, it's a silly movie. So we kind of then cut back to the family who are in the Paris airport and they try to call the police to check on Kevin, but Kevin doesn't answer the door for them. And so they don't think anyone's there. Kind of dumb police though, people too. You'd think that, you know, I don't think he really even walked around the house to try and right. check in. He wouldn't think that, oh, maybe this kid isn't going to open the door right. to a stranger, but you know, whatever, Chicago police. <laughs> not the brightest which we all found out in the Blues Brothers movie the mother is gonna stay and go on standby while the rest of the family is kind of just gonna wait it out in Paris to go wait for a little bit later flight but she's gonna try and get there as soon as she can so just a little scene of her staying behind and then we get a good scene another like home alone scene of Kevin just kind of getting ready for the day kind of doing the things that his dad would do you get him like cleaning up after the shower at his dad's mirror and he put on his aftershave and he screams Which uh, is cute. I never really thought the alcohol burn from aftershave really hurt, but I never really used it. When I shave, I don't use... Actually, I don't really shave anymore. <laughs> uh, I never really put on aftershave. I always put on, like, lotion. You haven't shaved in years. <laughs> <laughs> no, as evidenced by my exemplary beard. Yes. I did have to shave pretty regularly when I was in culinary school and, and was a cook for a while. And it's not a great feeling. It does burn a little, especially if you nick. Mm -hmm. But I don't imagine he was actually shaving. So <laughs> yeah, <laughs> I think he just saw his dad put on aftershave and assumed that's what you do. Yes. But it's cute. Kid kind of doing grown up things, which is just always cute. We see Kevin going back into his brother's room and he wants to get this tin box at the top. And he ends up busting up all of the shelves to get this box that had some money in it. And we see Buzz's tarantula that was on the shelf in a little terrarium it was busted and it it kind of wanders off inside the house somewhere i wonder if that will come back <laughs> cut to Marv and Harry. They are stealing stuff from another house. They are kind of watching TV. They hear a phone message that Kevin's parents were calling one of his neighbors to go check on him, basically, and they find out that he is home alone. So they ultimately decide, oh yeah, it's just this little kid. We're not gonna let one kid stand on our way to get this big score from this awesome rich house. We cut back to Kevin, and he thinks he is all by himself. In his mind, his parents are gone forever. His family is kind of gone forever because he wished them away. So he's gonna now kind of become more of a man and he's gonna go grocery shopping and he goes to buy a toothbrush just cute scene of him asking if it's approved by the american dental association if the uh, toothbrush is but then again he runs into old man marley at the store <laughs> and now an old man marley has like this bandage on his hand and we're like what the fuck is going on so we think maybe he got hurt hurting someone or something like that but yeah so we just kind of keep getting little glimpses of like this old man marley just keep coming back then we see kevin is so scared he leaves the 
the store, but he accidentally steals the toothbrush. And there's a little chase scene with the cops. It's unneeded. I didn't really care about that whole scene of him stealing the toothbrush and then the cops running after him. I think they had some more time remapping that I just didn't think worked as well this time. It was unneeded. Like before, because of the chaos of trying to get ready, it made sense to me directorially. But here it was just like, I mean, Kevin doesn't isn't a bad kid. I feel like he should have just stopped giving the money and be like, hey, I'm sorry, I was scared of the kid. I didn't get it. I didn't need that scene. But then we cut back to Marv and Harry, something I think is awesome. And they come back to this in Home Alone 2, where they're kind of like nicknamed as the wet bandits. At least that's what Marv wants them to be. And so he stuffs the sink and starts the water and basically trashes the house, which Harry is basically like, that's fucked up. And I agree. Like, you don't just steal people's shit. You like, you ruin their their house if you you drown that. And every moment you waste in the house is another moment you can get caught yeah exactly so not not that smart but yeah they kind of like come back to that as the sticky bandits in the next movie <laughs> which i i think actually i like the sticky bandits better because that was just funnier but it's kind of like it's their calling card right as they're leaving one of the houses they almost run over kevin and here is where kevin sees harry slash joe pesci's gold tooth when he kind of smiles at him and it kind of then clicks because they're driving this plumbing van. It's not a cop car. And Kevin now clicks that, oh my God, this was the person who was trying to get into the house. This is a thief, that kind of thing. Harry and Marv see just how weird Kevin looked at him. So they're going to kind of tail him. I guess they suspect that he's the kid who's all alone. And instead he goes into the church's manger and hides in the manger and kind of escapes them, which is fine. Cute, cute scene. Just kind of running through things quickly here. And here's kind of where we get Kevin is decided he is going to prep the house to protect it. He is going to be the man of the house and we get the line. Those guys come back. I'll be ready. And so we know he's going to get things going. The first idea that he has is to set up a faux party. He's got things on pulleys and (laughs) and like mannequins on a record player that are kind of spinning to look like dancing to try to confuse them. He's got a big cardboard cutout of Michael Jordan on a train that's just going in a circle. It's kind of funny but it also shows uh, he's got a lot of ingenuity. Yeah. He's an outside the box thinker. They get scared of the party or whatever so they're not going to break in tonight. Kevin orders a pizza and we get kind of the first setup scene of Kevin using that movie that we saw earlier to use as a faux adult voice to scare off the pizza guy. To me, I don't believe it because I understand how audio compression works. <laughs> and when you're doing audio through TV speakers, you sure as shit know it's not someone speaking to you. I also know how physics work. When the cop runs back around the house, everything you hear is the same volume. Oh, yeah. As soon as he got went around the corner, he should have noticed that, oh, the sound disappeared. When the pizza guy ran around? Yeah, pizza oh, yeah, guy yeah. ran back around the house. The sound should have changed, but it didn't. Yeah, that's how it works. Maybe they had this insanely awesome speaker system. Uh, yeah, exactly. Like a surround sound all over the house set up. Possible, but for 1990, doubtful. He ends up paying the money for the pizzas without tip and scares off the pizza guy by having the movie's gunfire scene start up. But honestly, $12 for one large pizza it seemed really fucking high for 1990. <laughs> yeah. I mean, that must have been like high level pizza. It seems high for now. Yeah, exactly. Yeah, (laughs) I bought pizza last night and it was $10 for a large. So I'm sorry. It's those pizzerias in Chicago is what it is. They're trying to upsell you with that deep dish. Load of bullshit. We got you, John Hughes. Boom. You're fucking wrong. I don't trust this movie at all anymore. 
cut back to the mom trying to get onto a plane to come back to Chicago. She's basically begging this old couple. She basically, she gets onto a plane, so we know that she's kind of starting her way back, which the timeline in this film is kind of off to, which I'll come back to in a bit. (laughs) By this time, we kind of cut back to Kevin, and by now, he's missing his family. And he wants them to come back. You know, he's a little sad that they're not there. He wants them all to come back, and he's ready for them. Which I think is inevitable. I've had a couple cases where my wife took my kids, you know, to go somewhere, and I would have to stay behind for one thing or another. I think one time she took them to California for a week, and I was home alone for a week, and the first two days of it were awesome, and the whole rest of the week I was so (laughs) bored. Uh Nothing was happening in the house. Yeah. But yeah, we get into the morning. So it's kind of like that night, Kevin misses his family. We wakes up in the morning and we get him singing into the mirror scene. I'm dreaming of a white Christmas. Getting ready for the day. He does aftershave again. Funny. He'd learn. Yeah. And then kind of we cut back and we kind of see the tarantula, the spider walking around on different cuts. And so we're just like, oh, oh yeah, that spider's still around somewhere. So I wonder if that will come back. Honestly, good filmmaking there when it comes yeah. to storytelling. That setup that we will eventually get a payoff. Kevin then goes shopping because he's kind of like acting grown up. It's really cute. He goes to the grocery store to buy a bunch of stuff. There's a cute little back and forth with the checkout girl. Questioning whether or not he's there alone and why is he buying groceries. Yeah, but he's the adult man of the house now, apparently. And then he's going to go and do some laundry. And so he does his laundry, even though he's probably only been at his house for maybe like 24 hours at most, or maybe maybe a little bit more than that. We get another weird shot of the furnace doing its weird furnacey thing in Kevin's <laughs> head. I just don't need it. I guess it's showing that he's kind of growing up and he's becoming less of a scaredy cat kid. I don't need it. It's kids doing non-kids things. Yeah. Kids doing adult things is cute, apparently. Yeah. So he tells the furnace to shut up and then it stops. He overcame his fear. Yeah. He overcame his fear. Maybe he is just getting a little bit more patient or grown up and he's not going to be as much of an asshat to his family (laughs) so then marv checks out the house because marv and harry still want to break in marv is checking it out and kevin uses the movie again the same one that he did with the pizza man to scare him away so marv thinks that somebody else got into the house and basically blew everyone away with Mm -hmm. with the gunfire just kind of cutish but dumb i wouldn't believe it kind of scene when you hear a tv through a door you know it's a fucking tv through a door No matter how loud it is. But basically the burglars, the wet bandits decide they're going to wait it out to see what's going on. We cut to the mother who is in Scranton, Pennsylvania now. They call it Scranton. What? The electric city. Scranton. What? The electric city. She talked about she was in Dallas and then Scranton. She mentions that. So obviously the airline, which was American, I noticed, (laughs) uh, (laughs) was just kind of sending her around. I guess she's trying to get on anything to get closer to home in Chicago. I don't know. It doesn't seem to me like Scranton is any closer to Chicago than Dallas was. Yeah, absolutely. But luckily here in Scranton, there is a very famous polka band that is also trying to get to Milwaukee. They can just drive through Chicago basically to get there. And who is the leader of this band? None other than Gus, a.k.a. John Candy. I love John Candy. Yeah. I mean, I want to do like every John Candy movie. I love Summer Rental. Yes. I love Uncle Buck. 
his stuff is just every movie he's in he always adds to and he's very yeah. seldom a, the leading guy in blues brothers he had a very small part but i love him in that movie Spaceballs. yeah amazing part in Spaceballs. so john candy is going to kind of save the day and help Catherine o'hara and he takes her into his big rental van kind of thing as they go across the country which is apparently a cargo van because there's a scene later where they're playing music in the back of the van yeah and they're just sort of sitting on a side bench yeah no it was it was 100 like a u-haul yeah and the people were just on a bench in the back of the U-Haul yeah. Yeah, playing in the band there, which one, it's illegal to ride in the back of those cars, but whatever. I don't remember if it was in 1990. I know you don't remember this. I remember when they started to have child seat laws for cars. That's how not long ago that was. Yeah. And I remember, hopefully he doesn't hear this. And so I remember our dad got pulled over because uh. he had a big cargo van one time and our sister abby and i were in the back and you were on his lap <laughs> and you were still an infant and he got pulled over because the law had just gone into effect and, and he got either a ticket or a warning that he had to put you in a seat oh gotcha either the cop didn't say anything about us because i remember abby and i were sitting on the wheel well <laughs> I think I remember this van a little bit. He didn't have it for very long. Yeah. But he had to have you in a seat. So yeah, maybe maybe back in this time, it wasn't as much of a thing. Well, it probably was. So this would have been about 86 or 87. Okay, so. well then, yeah. John Kennedy is endangering the lives of his entire polka band. So they're on the, on the road to Chicago. We cut back to Harry and Marv, and they realize for sure it's just the kid that's at the house. So they're going to plan to be back at nine o'clock. But in this time, Kevin hears them say that. And so he is going to prep the house for protection and we know he's gonna get things ready for them to be back by nine we get a cute little scene of him going to see santa to ask for his family back but he doesn't even see santa like in his lap he sees a drunk santa having a smoke walk into his car yeah but it's funny i mean it's cute he he's not that ignorant he even kind of says i know you're not the real santa but you talk to him right i mean this is a a cute little kid scene there like oh yeah then he sees another family he then goes to the church and he obviously isn't probably a member of this church or else he probably would have gone there much earlier and asked for help at one point. Right. But here he sees old man Marley in the church and it's, oh oh my God, he's a little scared at first. But then old man Marley comes over and talks to him. And here we find out that Marley, really nice guy. He ran into some issues with his family and he no longer talks to his son. And so now Marley can't really even talk to his granddaughter and he really wants to. And so he only really sees her when she's singing in the church choir. You know, he's just a, a nice guy. We find out that he's trustworthy but to me this puts a big ass fucking plot hole (laughs) in my head of we're establishing right here that marley is a nice trustworthy guy it's been well established that he lives right next door to the McAllisters. right he is a neighbor why the fuck didn't kevin just go over to the nice trustworthy man next door that he now has right to just protect everything to help to get some help I right don't, it doesn't make any sense in my opinion maybe kevin just wants to be the man and do things himself or he didn't think of that idea but i didn't get it because it's like all right we get this all figured out that marley is a good guy before the right. bandits come in and so like why didn't we have this established beforehand that help in the end it makes for a better movie i guess yeah i mean the best parts of the movie are basically the ones that are coming up so you right. can't just take those away by saying like well now he's protected yeah. by this old man now the movie's over yeah <laughs> he found a friend movie's over but we get some of that relationship with marley and his family and we kind of sympathize for him a little bit so we like marley now the bell rings at the church it's going to be probably semi-close to nine o'clock maybe just a couple hours before or maybe it's eight o'clock 
o'clock or something, but Kevin has to leave. There's a great little tie-in with the music cue. They use the church bell as a music cue to start the house prep scene. And one thing we haven't actually mentioned yet is the composer for this movie, John Williams. I did not even notice that. Yes. The music in this movie is actually quite good. The sort of the main theme, very, very well done. Don't they basically use like Carol of the Bells for a lot of stuff? But I guess it's like kind of a different take on it. They use some like Christmas inspired stuff, but like the main theme of it, the main sort of opening was just all uh, John Williams. Nice. starting to now prep for the robbers. Kevin has to defend the house and we kind of get back to the micro machines. He ices down the stone steps. He puts tar on stuff, a nail prep. Like basically we see all of his different handiwork getting set up. We get kind of a MacGyver-esque montage scene of him prepping the house. Yeah. (laughs) Kevin McAllister really set up the kid's mentality of how to protect anything. Like kind of almost like a, like he played mousetrap too much as a kid. (laughs) You know, and then he knows how to do all this shit. Which it took forever to set that fucking game up. And we had a version and we never played it because yeah. it took forever. So fuck that. So we would never think of this kind of stuff. You know what? It, could, it kind of would have been nice realizing that now if they would have set up that Kevin had some like buildy things or erector sets or something like right. that at, that he was playing with early on that we kind of could have would have tied in like, oh, this guy has a lot of that ingenuity. Kind of like in Sandlot. Yeah, very much. With, uh... I was thinking the same thing. But it doesn't matter. We yeah. kind of see it with the party scene, I guess, to an extent. So then they show up. I'm not going to go through their stuff step by step because... Right. Right. Everything that we saw just set up, they run into, they slip on the stairs. Right. Hilarity ensues, basically. Yeah. Like, all the stuff that we are expecting, and everybody knows all these scenes. Uh, one thing I do want to bring up, they actually have some pretty solid cinematography here, and, and I can't remember who the director of photography was, but they have some really good use of, like, low-angle shots and high-angle shots, and just kind of different stuff where it's not bland. You know, the film is not bland by any means. They have decent cinematography that, that just adds to the humor and adds to just the visual visual appeal of this scene and just most of the scenes in the film altogether. But basically, after all of the insanity that happens, stepping on nails, having like the tar, having the ice everywhere, they get into the house at some point. They're trying to chase him through it, get him in there. But Kevin sets up a zip line and he zip lines over to a treehouse and he's kind of like running them through and eventually they kind of figure out that they can't just do what he wants them to do because they're going to get fucked up if they do it. So they catch him as he's running up the basement, I think. He's really just playing with them most of the time. We really establish that he's the smart genius here and they're just the buffoons. <laughs> to be a thief, I mean, they show that Joe Pesci is a good scout and like he's smart right. to an extent. But like in most of this stuff, they're just really dumb and they yeah. just come back and do like the same kind of think of the same stupid stuff. Marv is for sure. Yeah, he's the dumber. The idiot. Joe Pesci, I got the sense that he just kind of let his emotions get the better of him we haven't really talked about daniel stern at all yeah daniel stern is fantastic yeah he is funny as hell in this movie he doesn't get nearly enough credit in a lot of the films that he does but he is a great comedic supporting guy yeah in a lot 
of films that oh, he yeah, does. Yeah. So I don't want to go without giving yeah. Daniel Stern just a huge praise. Apparently, um, Pesci and Stern didn't really think the movie was going to do much. So they kind of gave more over-the-top performances than they normally would have. Because they just kind of like, this really isn't going to do anything, so let's just have fun with it. I think when that happens, when you actually start to just have fun with it and you let go of that sort of pressure you end up with better performances. I mean, they're very comedic. At times, they are scary people. At times, they are stooge-like. They did a great job. But yeah, so they finally catch Kevin at the top of the basement stairs. They're gonna get him. And then who comes in and saves the day? It's old man Marley with his snow shovel, and he whacks the shit out of both of them. And I really actually enjoy... I just want to give a nod to the actor. The guy who played old man Marley is a guy named Roberts Blossom. He played a farmer in Close Encounters of the Third Kind, and uh, did a bunch of movies kind of way back in the 70s and 60s and stuff. especially the parts where he was just kind of telling you know Kevin about his family and stuff really enjoyed his performance yeah. seemed very genuine and yeah he kind of looked scary but in the moments where he was supposed to be sweet it yeah. really came across when you first heard him talk I mean, because he looked really gruff and he looked scary early on yeah but when you first hear his voice it's like oh that's a sweet guy he yeah had a really nice does not sweet sound voice to like what he looked like yes but old man Marley saves the day the cops take the bandits away and they kind of funny scene of oh, oh now we know that you're the wet bandit so we know every single house that you hit and it just kind of comes back to bite them in the ass a little bit which is exactly what harry kind of <laughs> no i i didn't bring up the spider running through the damn house right of course kevin used it at one point to try and get away from them where he thought he was caught by daniel stern kevin sees the spider puts it on daniel stern's face and he freaks out that was slapsticky moments i gave our audience zero payoff <laughs> <laughs> So I had to reverse myself on that. I'm not a good storyteller. That's why you're the editor. That's that's not good. Actually, you're editor right. should be a good storyteller. That's true. Uh, that's why I manage editors. How about that? Is that good? <laughs> Fuck. Um, the next day, Kevin wakes up. It's a white Christmas. He's kind of hoping for his family to be there. Then the U-Haul basically pulls up. The mother gets out. Thank you, John Candy, for all of your help. And they gets out. And then there's a, just a cute scene of her kind of standing behind Kevin and him turning around and... The family couldn't make it, but then, oh, fuck, the family opens up because they went on the later flight and the mom, apparently her running around everywhere, being flown around everywhere. Took just as long. Was useless, yeah. So don't try to get to your kids earlier. Just fuck it. Take the later flight. Take the later flight, yeah, relax. Enjoy the first class. Yeah. Your kid will be fine. Pretty much, according to John Hughes. As long as he's got some micro machines and an air rifle, he'll be fine. But I looked up the drive from Scranton to Chicago is about 11 hours. I mean, you would say it'd go a little bit longer with that big truck. So, I mean, even then, it's probably like... 12 or 13 hours, probably. Yeah, 13, 14, maybe, max. It felt like a lot longer. It (laughs) felt like it was multiple days that they were going through. But fuck it. I'll try not to bash it too much on that. Another funny little scene, the dad sees the gold tooth. He's a little bit ignorant so obviously kevin did a fairly good job of cleaning things up afterwards except for buzz's room who yells at the end what did you do to my room you brat or something like that (laughs) and we also see that kevin notices that old man marley is embracing his granddaughter the son was there so he must have taken the advice that kevin mentioned in the church Mm -hmm. to just go and talk to him so everybody kind of gets a fairy tale ending to an extent my overall thoughts is definitely you know a very kids-esque movie but this is not one that i would shy away from particularly like 
like in a group. I think if I was in a group of even like of my 30 year old friends nowadays, like I could see us maybe having a little eggnog, uh, <laughs> spiked eggnog, sit down and watch this movie and have a pretty damn good time. It's one that you can talk over. It's one that you can kind of mystery science theater 3000 a little bit right. and just have fun with it. But it was still a very enjoyable film to me. You know what I thought it was too? I was worried that there wasn't going to be a lot of rewatchability as an adult. Yeah. But you know what? There's very few things that actually date the movie. There are a few things, but they're almost not noticeable. The movie almost is relatively timeless in, mm-hmm. in that it, most of the jokes still land. They're not time specific, so they're general enough. I actually enjoyed rewatching this movie. Like you said, I don't know if I'd go out of my way to watch it by myself. Yeah. This is more something that I would watch with my kids who have actually already seen the movie before. Exactly. It'd be it'd be good with a, a group, either like, you know, yeah. a family whole thing or just a group sort of, of adults. bring out the nostalgia. Hey, let's watch Home Alone like we used to when we were kids. Yeah. That sort of thing. You know, it holds up a, a lot better than some of the other movies we've we've watched that I don't think do quite hold up this one i think does especially for a christmas movie is it the best christmas movie no that goes to one movie die hard <laughs> Corda adam yes die hard is the best christmas movie easily but i think it's a good christmas movie and definitely one that still stands the test of time All right, so now we're going to do what is normally the TV portion of the show, and and it is a TV portion, but normally we talk about a TV show that runs for multiple seasons, but since this is our holiday episode, we decided to do a TV Christmas special, Mm -hmm. one that uh, we know we've seen a lot growing up, and you probably have too, and still gets shown on TV now. So we're going to kind of almost do a full review of the TV movie Rudolph the Red-Nosed Reindeer. Originally aired on December 6th in 1964. It was directed by Larry Romer, written by Romeo Mueller, who also wrote Frosty the Snowman. Oh, the cartoon? The cartoon, yes. And also wrote the 1977 cartoon The Hobbit movie. Oh, God. (laughs) (laughs) Okay. Also given credit are the originators of the story and the song. I might ruin some childhoods with this fact, but Rudolph the Red-Nosed Reindeer was a story written by a man named Robert May in 1939, written for the Montgomery Ward Company, which was a retail company. So it was written yeah. to sell things as what? yes. So not a not a traditional story, obviously. Not much about our modern day sort of Christmas mythologies with Santa's is actually traditional. It's all an amalgamation of different cultures and different things. In 1949, Robert May's brother-in-law, a guy named Johnny Marks, wrote the song Rudolph the Red-Nosed Reindeer. He created the song out of Robert May's story. He wrote it in 1949 and and had Gene Audrey record it and became Gene Audrey's number one hit in 1949. Country legend. Rudolph the red-nosed reindeer had a very shiny nose and if you ever saw it you would even say it glows. And Johnny Marks also wrote several other Christmas songs you heard of. He wrote Rockin' Around the Christmas Tree. He wrote Holly Jolly Christmas and Silver and Gold specifically for this special. But the Burl Ives released them separately on a, on his own album, and those became huge hits. He also wrote the Chuck Berry Christmas song, Run, Rudolph, Run. Oh, it's a great song. Yeah, big name in sort of the commercial music market. It's a TV movie, relatively short, though. Yeah, it only runs like 47 minutes. And honestly, I completely forgot it was even that fucking long. Yeah, it actually moves really fast. I thought it actually moved really slow. Oh, really? <laughs> yes. Oh, I thought it moved I pretty quick. I thought it was quick. boring as fuck. <laughs> 
Anyway, no, we're going to talk about it. Rudolph Red-Nosed Reindeer is a stop-motion animation movie. Do you know what they use? Because it wasn't claymation. Were they like little felt toys or something? Yeah, they were like little puppets. Okay. They were like they were wood and felt and yeah. a little bit of clay and stuff like that. So it was stop-motion animation. The animation itself actually was recorded in Japan. Oh, okay. They wrote the story and recorded all the voices in America and then sent it to Japan to have the animation filmed along with some of the other stuff. Some of the notable cast members are obviously Burl Ives, who plays Sam the Snowman. That wasn't Frosty? It's not Frosty. He even says, he says, my name is Sam. I didn't notice that at all. Yes, that's one of the very first things he says. Just thought, oh, well, there's Frosty telling us a story. No, it's not Frosty. His name is uh, Sam the Snowman. A lady named Billy Mae Richards famously plays Rudolph. A couple other guys, Stan Francis plays Santa Claus. Paul Souls plays Hermie. And Larry D. Munn plays, I think, one of the greatest character names ever, Yukon Cornelius. Yeah, that's a good name. I agree. That's a good name. (laughs) Let's kind of dive right into the story. It opens with Sam the Snowman. He's our narrator. He talks about living in Christmastown. And it's about the time that Santa needs to be fattened up. Now, you see Santa, and he's kind of skinny. And you realize it's only a few days before Christmas. So he has to get fat really fast. Yeah. I wish it was that easy to kind of gain weight and lose weight because then I could just choose to be fat or skinny whenever I wanted as opposed to just stuck being (laughs) a chubster. He kind of leads us into, well, you know that this is where the very famous story of Rudolph happened. What? You've never heard of Rudolph? And he kind of sings us into our intro for the movie and we start off hearing about one of Santa's reindeer, Donner. Donner's having a kid, and the kid turns out to be Rudolph. He comes out. The one thing that did really bother me was every time Rudolph's nose blinked, oh. there was an annoying, high-pitched, squealing, screeching sound. Hated the sound. sound. I hated it. For some reason, we needed some sort of audio cue that every time the light brightened up or whatever, which apparently was a real effect. The nose on the puppet, which was only about four inches tall, actually did light up. But I agree. That sound was just so (laughs) fucking annoying. One of the lines I actually thought was pretty funny was his beak blinks like a blinking beaker. And then we kind of get into one of our first big songs. This is kind of a musical called Jingle, Jingle, Jingle. All the songs were written by Johnny Marks, which is kind of interesting because he wrote the original song in 1949. This movie didn't come out until 1964, but they still brought in Johnny Marks to write all of these additional songs for the movie. Jingle, 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 you will hear my sleigh bells ring. I am old Kris Kringle, I'm the king of jingling. Jingle, jingle, ring. Like this first song in particular and some of the other ones, like I forgot about a lot of these songs. A lot of these songs I felt are pretty forgettable because they're just, they're not that good. (laughs) There's a couple of them that are good, that stand the test of time, but like this one and then some other ones that we'll get to, I'm just like, oh, fuck, I forgot (laughs) about that one. The Doe has an entire fucking solo song and I completely forgot about it. Yeah. Fuck. Anyway, Donner's a little embarrassed by his kid, so he decides uh, he's going to cover his kid's nose in what I'm guessing was mud or dirty snow. I couldn't tell. I think it was coal. Coal. There we go. We also get introduced to the snow monster they simply call the Abominable. Every time they show him initially, he's about the size of King Kong. Yeah. They're massively inconsistent. Yes, on they're his massively side. inconsistent on how big he is. The first few times you see him, you either see just parts of him, or when you do see all of him, he's literally the size of a mountain. But we kind of just introduce him. Then we're introduced to the elves. We go to Santa's workshop, and we're introduced to Hermie, 
who doesn't like to make toys. An elf who doesn't like to make toys. He wants to be a dentist. A dentist. <laughs> I want to be a dentist. I kind of kept looking for stuff in between the lines with this movie. I tried to like see if maybe they want us to root for Hermie because he didn't want to follow do what you're told kind of communist mentality of elves have to like work. You can be you can be free in America and be a dentist if you want. That's right. kind of I wanted to see. <laughs> I don't know if it lines up. I think there was supposed to be an underlying message of just because someone is different doesn't mean they don't don't have value yes but it, it does it in a sort of a backhanded way yeah sort of that 1964 mentality yeah you know that sort of madman almost mentality yeah like donner the dad reindeer was a complete like just classic asshole dad yeah my like son's not gonna have a blinking red nose or yes. whatever you know something no, like that. kind of like a very 50s-esque kind of father who isn't open to anything changing the thing also is the thing that got me was the elves had a very sort of industrial work setting yes communism <laughs> no not communism but like sort of the blue collar in the 50s and 60s get up go to work go to the factory clock yeah. in do your work go home take your break 10 minute break and you know that sort of thing then we get these teases of the song misfit or i don't fit in yeah which we first see Hermie do it and then it cuts to rudolph and rudolph also sings part of it. Another one I completely kind of forgot about that was a forgettable song in my opinion. Why am I such a misfit? I am not just a nitwit. You can't fire me. I quit. Seems I don't fit in. I didn't think the songs were horrible, but they don't stick with you like some of the other ones do. Yeah, yeah. You don't get I'm a Misfit song on Mariah Carey's album or <laughs> that's coming out. Right. But you will get something like Holly Jolly Christmas or right. shit like that. So this, to me, these ones are subpar. We kind of have a little fawn mingle where they're kind of meeting everyone and uh rudolph meets a, a little fawn named fireball she's like oh come hang out i wonder if fireball will ever come back in this sh- in this movie if we see him ever again nope <laughs> what the fuck was the point of fireball why give him a name that is the thing is like why give him a name we're also introduced to clarice yes <laughs> You know she was the hot one because she had a bow on her head. That's right. She was, she was the hot doe. So we just see them kind of mingling. He meets Fireball. Then we go back to Santa's workshop. They do a performance of a, the new elves have the new song for Santa. Santa seems distracted. He doesn't like it. Uh, even though Mrs. Claus thinks it's lovely. Mm-hmm. The head elf berates the tenor section. Okay, there was a weird spot for me. If you go back and watch this, lack of continuity or some issue here, where the boss's voice completely changes oh, in this yeah. one shot. He talks to all of his people in one voice, and then he, I guess, turns and talks to Santa, and it is 100% a different voice. It's not even the same actor doing, like, a different voice for that one, but it's the same character that talks completely different when he talks to Santa or something like that, and it sounds so different to me. I was thrown off, like, whoa, whoa, what the fuck is this? (laughs) And then, like, the next shot, he's talking to the elves, and he's got his angry voice on again. Now let's try out the new elf song I wrote. And remember, it's for Santa. That sounded terrible. The tenor section was weak. That made no sense to me. It doesn't come back. I didn't get it. I think it was a fuck up on their part. Some sort of ADR thing they had to do that didn't yeah. quite line up or something like that. And we find out that Hermie didn't show up. And Hermie's uh, run away. So we're back at our mingle. It's sort of like a reindeer PE class. Mm-hmm. What it looks like. You have sort of like the coach with the whistle and the hat. Rudolph's talking to Clarice. And then the coach is talking about flying. I think Comet is the yeah. coach. Yeah, trying to talk about flying and how you have to kind of take a good run. The other fawns are trying and not getting there. And so while he's talking to Clarice, Clarice gives him a peck on the cheek and he's happy she likes me she likes me whatever and he starts and he starts to fly I can't. I can't. 
And then, in all of the excitement, the nose cover comes off. Rudolph is ridiculed. Just kind of like a, what is that sort of moment. And Santa comes out and chastises Don. Yeah. Santa is an asshole. Santa, completely. Even though, like, <laughs> Rudolph showed he had the best flying skills, because he's slightly different, where Santa's like, fuck you, you gotta conform to what I say. And yeah. He, yeah, he was a dick. He only goes like, I only take the best reindeer for my And it's like, he was the best flyer. Yeah. What are you talking about? Anyway, Rudolph kind of runs away, but Cleary's follows. And then you get the one-off song you talked about. I think it's called There's Always Tomorrow. I don't know. It's kind you, of- don't, you don't even remember it now because it's that <laughs> yeah. forgettable. There's always tomorrow for dreams to come true. Believe in your dreams, come what may. But then Clarice's father comes and chastises her for hanging out with Rudolph because he's the oddball. So it's definitely that story. And in this, uh, Rudolph meets Hermes and they decide they're going to be independent. And then we get the full version of our Misfits song. We're a couple of Misfits. We're a couple of Misfits. What's the matter with Misfits? So then they kind of walk away. They're in a blizzard. We hear the abominable. And then we meet the greatest prospector in all the land, Yukon Cornelius. The name's Yukon Cornelius, the greatest prospector in the north. Who uh, apparently has a dog sled of all different kinds of dogs. Yeah. (laughs) Most of which are not suited for the snow. I think it's a funny scene where they can't lead the sled and he's like, I'll show you how. And he just grabs it and goes. I think he's by far my favorite character in this whole thing is Yukon Cornelius. He talks about that he's looking for silver and gold. Holly Jolly Christmas actually is a better song. Oh yeah, much much. But Silver and Gold is a classic. Yeah, this song I definitely remember. It's a classic. I remember it being a boring song as a kid and it's still a bit of a boring (laughs) song now. So I didn't care for it and I still didn't care for it, but I at least remembered it. Yeah, I didn't think it was a bad song. I just, there's not much to it. I was always bored by this one. As a kid, it was just like every time this one came up, I was just like, oh, okay. Silver and gold, silver and gold. Everyone wishes for silver and gold. How do you measure its worth? So now uh, they're on their way and the Abominable just kind of comes out of nowhere. This happens quite a bit where the Abominable just kind of shows up. I mean, he chases after them and they're saved by getting on a floating iceberg because apparently the Abominable cannot swim. That's the only thing that saves them. We're back at uh, Christmas Town or the North Pole and Donner's going to go searching for Rudolph and then you get one of the first real lines that tells you when this movie was made. Donner goes searching for him and he goes, this is man's work. Yes, yeah. (laughs) This is man's work. He's an ass. So he takes off and then Clarice comes over and her and the mother decide to go searching as well. So they they head off. Uh, We're back with our heroes adrift, Rudolph, Hermie, and Yukon. And they land on an island and they meet what we think is a jack-in-the-box, but it turns out he's a Charlie in the box. (laughs) And we find out that we are on the island of misfit toys. When we get our next song, Island of Misfits Toys, also uh, kind of leads into When Christmas Day is Here. When Christmas Day is here, the most wonderful day of the year. An okay song. Not the worst, but definitely not the best. We meet the king 
I was like, is this Narnia? Yeah, exactly. Is I thought it was Jesus Asl- allegory lining. He here? sounded exactly like Aslan, Aslan, or whatever. Well, this one would have been first yeah. from the movie, so Aslan sounds yeah. like King yeah. Moonracer, which is a horrible <laughs> name. I don't know how they came up with it. They didn't really explain why he was a misfit. I mean, he was a lion with wings. He was like a griffin. Yeah. But like, there's a word for that. It's a griffin. Well, that's not a griffin. A griffin is the head of an oh, eagle. you're right. The head the of an eagle. the body of a lion. Yeah, yeah, yeah. I don't know. He was just a lion with wings is all he was. Yeah. Rudolph decides that he needs to go back, but he doesn't want to endanger anyone, so he he takes off by himself. Sam just kind of tells us that time passes, people are looking, and in the time, Rudolph grows up. So apparently in all this time, Donner and his mother and Clarice are all out looking for him. Yeah. It's like almost like a year passes, I think. I know. At least. I know. Yeah, they were kind of close to Christmas before. Right. And they didn't establish, like, wouldn't it have been weird for Santa to go off and do a Christmas without Donner, one of his fucking main reindeers? <laughs> I know. There's a lot of little holes that obviously they didn't care about. <laughs> yeah. And so Rudolph kind of grows up, which we now know because where he had little tiny nubs for antlers. Now he's got a full rack. Yeah. Oh, hey And he heads back home and realizes no one was there because Santa tells him that, that everyone was out looking for him. And Santa, not directly, but kind of offhandedly berates him for <laughs> Santa is an ass. Yeah, he is. So then we find out that the storm of storm hits. Rudolph apparently knows exactly where to go look. That made no fucking sense. So this bit of like, <laughs> Like continuity, there's continuity errors, issues like all over the fucking place. Like that, that timing didn't make any sense. He goes immediately to where they are, and I didn't get it. It made no no storytelling sense to me. So he goes to the cave of the abominable, where either the abominable has had them this whole time and has just been toying with them, <laughs> or they only just now made it there because yeah. it looks like he's about to eat them. And his timing is that perfect. Yeah, Rudolph's timing is that perfect. So he tries to fight the monster. He kind of charges at him a little bit, knocks him down a little bit. But it's obvious that he's not going to be them and then in come our two supporting heroes Yukon and Hermie and they devise a plan to lure out the monster with a bad pig impression. Yeah. Oink, oink. Put some heart in it. That bumble's hungry. Oink, 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 oink. And then as he comes out, Yukon knocks some rocks down on him. He kind of knocks him out a little bit. And for some reason, while he's out, Hermie decides to remove the monster seed. Yeah, but like I guess it's to like render him non-dangerous. So Which he can't doesn't eat make them. any sense because he's still big and he still has claws. Yes, and continuity errors throughout. As they try to get past him, Yukon ends up wrestling with him and then they go over the side. And all the dogs. Yeah. Like dogs jump on <laughs> at the same time. Everyone over. That one I didn't really mind. I, I like, I mean, maybe it's because I like Yukon gold kind of like you do and he's yeah. like he's just a badass yeah. <laughs> oh oh you guys are all think you can take the abominable by yourself no fuck it i'm yukon cornelius i got this motherfucker i almost called him yukon gold but that's a potato <laughs> <laughs> You know what? Huh. NBC aired this originally, but then CBS bought it. Now CBS owns it. Uh, and so like a lot of the other specials like uh, Frosty or The Grinch and stuff will actually air on multiple stations. This one only airs on CBS. So if, if it weren't for the fact that I would probably get sued by CBS, I would love to make a Yukon Cornelius comic book. Yeah. Turn him into like a real adventure. Yeah. Get the prequel. Like what made Yukon so <laughs> badass? A young Yukon Cornelius. Oh, and then we get another sort of sexist 60s moment where he goes, get the women back to Christmas town. Yeah. Yep, must protect the women because apparently they're incapable of protecting themselves. So we're back in Christmas Town, and Cornelius shows up with a reformed monster. Yeah, it it came with no explanation. It's just like, oh, he's good now, and so we just have to trust Yukon because also apparently they can't just kill a character. Yeah. 
you know, he goes over and, and even though it's not state, you know, we don't see that he's killed. You can't, I don't want any kids to assume. Basically, he comes in and says, oh, I was talking with the monster <laughs> and he wants a job. <laughs> <laughs> and that's it. Like, what? What the fuck? Because he's tall, he can put a fucking star on the tree. Wow. Right. Yes. That's his job is he can put a star on the tree. The storm won't subside. So Santa says, we're going to have to cancel Christmas. And he's telling everyone and Rudolph's nose starts to glow. And at first Santa's annoyed and then he realizes, by George. I can use that nose to find my way through the snow, which makes no sense because if anyone who's ever driven in a snowstorm knows you can't see shit no matter how much light you put on it. I mean, maybe the fact that it was a red light would help, but if it's a, like a whiteout, that light's not going to penetrate anything. By George, I made fun of you for this your entire life, but now I can use it to my advantage? <laughs> exactly. Come on! <laughs> now you have worth to me. It wasn't just for your personality yeah. or your initial skills. Now you, the one thing that I need now is what puts you on my sleigh. Ugh. Oh. Fucking Santa. Yep. Then we get the classic song from this one, Holly Jolly Christmas. Yeah, I mean, that's a great song. Have a holly jolly Christmas. It's the best time of the year. I don't know if there'll be snow, but have a cup of cheer. Have a holly jolly Christmas. And when you walk down... Sung by Burl Ives. That's how I know that it's the holiday time. Mm-hmm. When I definitely when, I, when that song kind of comes on. Then uh, we get the, the apparentness that apparently Santa gained 150 pounds in about one night. Yeah, yes. Because <laughs> he has to get fattened up. Rudolph leads the way. He leads the way for a seven reindeer team. It's a nine reindeer team. What the fuck happened to two of them? I don't know. There's we only all, seven on there, but there's supposed to be Rudolph and the eight. And the other eight that we all know. Yeah. It doesn't make any damn sense. This movie is a piece of trash. <laughs> Starting to notice the theme here. <laughs> so here in the version that you probably know, Santa takes the team back to the Island of Misfit Toys, where Rudolph has promised that they would get Santa to come back. They pick them up. They go up, up, and away. Sam sings the title song, Rudolph Red Ranger, and that's pretty much the end of the show. They kind of send off the toys. Yeah, as they're, you're assuming that the Misfits are now going into other people's yeah. homes. However, if you saw the original 1964 broadcast, if anyone who's listening is old enough for that, which would have to be our parents yeah i don't know if they probably don't listen to this and the original ending yukon who kept throwing his axe up in the air and then tasting it was actually searching for a peppermint mine and he finds it in the end i heard that line he mentioned i'm rich i struck a peppermint mine or something he says that at one point from the version i watched but it didn't click that that's kind of what he wanted well so it ends sort of there after the show initially aired nbc was inundated with letters from kids going well what about the island of misfit toys Uh. what about those those toys there so they had to go back and add an additional footage of Santa coming in, picking up the toys and taking them off. So pretty much everything thereafter, every showing thereafter included the added scene. Oh. Kids, you can't change TV shows with a letter writing yeah. campaign. Well, that's really sucky that they didn't have that they at the first. They're like, well, what's, what's the what, point? What happened to that? You know, they spent all this time on the Island of Misfit Toys. Yeah, so it ends there. And that is our Christmas special. It is obviously dated. And I think the only reason it really still gets shown is for its nostalgia. It's been shown as far as I know every year since 1964. Yeah. Somebody shows it. Mm-hmm. Not a lot of quality anymore. I mean, it's very old. Yes, the stop motion is really slow. That animation part of it is, is, isn't is great. But I let it slide. That didn't yeah. really bother me. Yeah, it's 1964. 
So that's that's fine. I mean, it still seemed like a cool spectacle for its time, and then yeah. I could appreciate it for that. That didn't bother the storytelling for me on that aspect. The storytelling bothered the storytelling <laughs> on me. I didn't really care for it this time. I thought it was honestly pretty slow, just because things didn't make much sense that I was moving on, and I just I wanted things to like make sense. I wanted yeah. you to tell me like, oh, here's another. How did that happen? Wait, what the fuck? That doesn't make any sense. Wait, I kept getting dragged on because I got bored because it did none of it was like good storytelling in my opinion there were lots of plot holes yes lots of things that really didn't come back i understand we're ripping on the plot holes of a fucking like kids movie like right. a kids made for tv animation movie but i think i want to take this and cut it down to like a 15 minute thing <laughs> Short. and it will be perfect i can get rid of all the crappy songs that no one even remembers anyway and some of those plot holes just kind of like edit around them if i can like just cut like the 15 minutes that we all remember and we can get established honestly i didn't have a good time watching this every few minutes i was like oh i remember that that's cute and then here's another five minutes of crap that's how i felt yeah. I ended up watching this with my family. We did it a couple nights ago. The thing that got me was all the things that I obviously had not noticed in the kids, like all the sexism and mm-hmm. all of the prejudice. <laughs> and kind of came to a head when my daughter was constantly saying, why is he sad? Uh, this really is kind of a slow, depressing. I know it's supposed to be heartfelt, but in the end, like nothing really kind of resolves itself the way it should have resolved itself. Ultimately, this is going to be your call as a listener, whether or not this is something that you hold in nostalgia. I honestly don't think it's worth watching again. It's still got the nostalgic factor and to show it to the kids is is cute just for basically to see if they get anything out of it. But for you to be like, oh yeah, I remember those days watching this on broadcast TV back in the day. If you're looking for a good story, this it is not. We're kind of ripping on a (laughs) movie that everyone knows is not meant for its story. Right. It's meant for its songs and its cuteness factor uh, and the good moral quality of that. It has all of that, but it has nothing else. It's not one that I will be pushing to ever watch again. If I see it on TV, I'm just going to scroll right past it. Exactly. Unless I'm watching kids or something or they're over at the big family event and the whole people want to watch it. And if we can all gather our nostalgic love for certain moments together and that will do it. Otherwise, pass. And as long as you can crack open a cold one. Yes, I'm (laughs) many a cold one. Merry Christmas, everyone. So now we've reviewed Home Alone, we've reviewed Rudolph the Red-Nosed Reindeer, now let's recast Home Alone and see what actors from today would make this a fun movie if we wanted it to be remade. Even though they've made this movie like, I think they have like five or six versions, a couple of them that went straight to DVD, there's no way that they were any good. After two, you stop watching. But if they were doing like another blockbuster revamp of this one, who would be in that one? So we are going to recast Kevin McAllister, Kate McAllister, who's the mother, Peter McAllister, the dad. We're going to recast Harry, who was Joe Pesci's character. We're going to recast Marv, who was Daniel Stern's character. We're going to recast old man Marley and we're going to recast Gus who was John Candy's character because why the fuck not yeah I want to go ahead and just start with Kevin okay because let's just get him out of the way because honestly he has to be good and drive the movie but is also the one that I know the least about of like young kid actors and so he's not the linchpin of this movie uh, or at least the linchpin of this casting to me that's probably like Marvin Harry honestly we'll go with Kevin and then the mother father Gus then old man Marley and then Harry and Marv so for Kevin I just kind of researched a couple of of different kids, young 
kid actors and someone who I thought looked good. I honestly haven't really seen much of his stuff, but he was in the movie Room recently. He was in the movie Wonder. He has kind of a, not really a Macaulay Culkin look to him, but he just has a very cute kid look to him. And his name is Jacob Tremblay. He's just kind of a cute little blonde kid. I've seen these trailers for this Wonder movie, which is the one with Owen Wilson and oh, yeah. Julia Roberts and the kid who kind of has like the facial deformity or, or like, like, like a, a he's had a bunch of surgeries or something. Yeah. But that's Jacob Tremblay, I think, under kind of the, the prosthetics of that movie. So I imagine if they cast him in that, he's got to be a pretty damn good actor yeah. to handle that stuff for a kid. But he's got a really good look to him, in my opinion, for some another kid who could take up that mantle. It's going to be really hard to beat Macaulay Culkin's Kevin for sure. So I, yeah, I went Jacob Tremblay. I started searching. I got into the, uh, I need someone who's like Macaulay Culkin or someone who looks like Macaulay Culkin. And then I finally broke myself from that mold and I decided that my Kevin is not going to be a Kevin. It's going to be a girl. Kevinita. Kevinita or Kavina or something like that. (laughs) However they want to change the name. Honestly, I don't Uh care. And I found who I think actually would be a perfect person because she kind of already has kind of a, not a reputation, but she already plays a character specifically that is similar. Not exactly like Kevin, but enough where I was like, like, I can make that transition. And I went with an actress named Aubrey Anderson Emmons, who plays Lily in Modern Family. Oh! Now she's right. about the right age uh, that Kevin McAllister ca- uh, character should be. I could see that happening. I liked Modern Family. I kind of stopped it once they got Lily, and Lily switched from the baby to she grew up a lot older. And then I kind of stopped watching Modern Family. I don't know. But it's been going on for years. Yeah. People love the show. But that first season I thought was unstoppable. All right, let's move on to the dad. Played by John Hurd in the film. He really didn't do much much in the movie he was just kind of right. there i wanted a dad who i guess could do that but just kind of like a very simple dad but who could add some comedic flavor to it uh-huh this is not a big character he's probably the the least on-screen character out of all no. of these people and the reason i think i included him in the list was just as we just recently lost john hurd oh yeah true so i was like you know what we'll th- we'll throw him in there as, yeah. a, as a nod to him so i picked this guy after kind of like wanting to make sure that i could envision this person is married to my mom casting who's much more important but i went with paul rudd as my okay. dad yeah, I can see that. Oddly enough, I went with a guy who actually looks a little bit like John Hurt. Oh. <laughs> um, he's also kind of a comedic actor, but, you know, he could kind of disappear into the role. I actually went with Daryl Hammond. Oh, he does kind of look like he John Hurt. He kind of looks Hurt. like John Hurt a little yeah. bit. Yeah, I mean, good good comedic actor, just yeah. kind of like on the side kind of stuff. Yeah, like, exactly. You know, side actor. Yeah, he's done that kind of, I like that. That's a good call. I might like that a little better than mine, but Hollywood would probably hire Paul Rudd before Daryl Hammond, <laughs> let's be honest. It depends on how much screen time. Yeah, Now true. that Paul Rudd's been Ant-Man, I don't know if yeah. he's going to take uh, something with a lot less screen time. So so let's move on to Kate McAllister, the mother. Catherine O'Hare does a fantastic job. She's a great actress. She's a great comedian. And I don't think she gets enough credit either. I mean, her stuff in all of Christopher Guest's films is just, she is usually the highlight of all of those films or one of, I think there's a million highlights in those movies, honestly. Yeah. But her performance in Best in Show yes. is quite possibly my favorite female comedian role in, in anything. Yeah, she's awesome. I didn't pick the best comedic actress. She's done some comedic stuff, but I think she would fit really well with a Hollywood Home Alone remake mom type. And I went with Jennifer Aniston. So she's done plenty of comedies. Obviously with friends and romantic comedy movies, she could do stuff. She's going to be no Catherine O'Hara by any means, but I think she would do do a decent job. And so I had her and Paul Rudd. So yeah, mine's Jennifer Aniston. What about you? My thought process was after I picked my Kevin or my Kavina now, (laughs) 
Aubrey Anderson is half Korean. Mm -hmm. I thought, well, I mean, it it really shouldn't matter. But I'm always looking for an excuse to put this woman into movies just because she's one of my favorite actresses. And she's not actually even known for comedies, but I love her as an actress. And so I went with Lucy Liu. Okay. Lucy Liu is my mom. Yeah. Daryl Hammond is my dad. Aubrey uh, Anderson Emmons as my Kevin. Okay. Just imagining Lucy Liu and Daryl Hammond having sex. And I... (laughs) (laughs) No. I'm sorry. I can imagine Jennifer Aniston and Paul Rudd having sex. Oh, yeah, I'm good with that. But not Lucy Liu. Yeah, Daryl Hannah. Thanks, John. Thank you for that. I'm sorry. Did you think, did you think, cut all this did you, did you think about them? Like, that's no, that's part of it. It's just your reaction to it. Yeah. <laughs> Your reaction to the whole thing. Funny. I don't think about her acting performance. I think about her having sex with the father to create Kevinita. <laughs> Keep moving. Okay. Let's move on to Gus. You're not going to get anyone better than John Candy. Yeah. Not that even it was even like a huge, awesome role. It's just like you're not going to get anyone better than John Candy. That's just how John Candy is. But you need someone, in my opinion, I kind of wanted to keep that kind of a larger guy, a very friendly kind of feeling guy. Mm-hmm. And it's a musician character. So I picked a comedian who's kind of like a larger-ish comedian who is known for some of his music stuff. And if you've ever watched The Office, he also is kind of a nice, friendly guy in that one. I went with Craig Robinson. Oh, okay. I mean, very funny. He kind of does some adult humor stuff, but in The Office, he was kind of very friendly dude, very straight, but he's funny as hell. He does his own music. He does like piano stuff. So maybe you would tie that in instead of the polka, or you could have Craig Robinson doing polka, which, you know, <laughs> that would be pretty fucking funny too. So right. I'd, I'd be pretty happy with that. I kind of somewhat along the same lines. I did pick someone who was a comedian. I didn't necessarily pick someone who was big like John Candy uh-huh. or necessarily even a musician, but someone who actually, you know what, when I was younger, I really didn't think much of his comedy. But the older I get, the more sort of genuine and funny I think the guy actually is. I went with George Lopez. Oh, okay. Yeah. Sort yeah. of in that friendly, because yeah, he, he kind of played that f- sort of friendly, wise mm-hmm. kind of character, which is what got, kind of Gus is. He's kind of like the, the advice giver. I honestly thought of George Lopez for one minute as possibly Harry taking over Joe Pesci's character. Oh, okay. for some reason. But I like him as Gus, too. That's, yeah. That's not bad. I don't really see George Lopez as a, any kind of antagonist anymore. Yeah. Yeah. I yeah, really yeah. can only see him in sort of like a friendly role. Wasn't, and Gus seems like a really the, good. He's the antagonist in the shark boy versus lava girl movie oh, i uh, never saw that <laughs> well yeah you're yeah, i only saw most of it because i was working in a movie theater that summer when it came oh. out <laughs> piece of trash okay. but uh, i'm cool with that i, I like my call better not gonna lie <laughs> All right, let's move on to Old Man Marley. Yeah, there's plenty of options. A lot of people could do this. I'm not sure I love my pick. I really leaned on the looks gruff old man, but you really need someone who looks gruff, but is really a genuine sweetheart. And this guy, his voice, I don't think he could ever be sweet enough. I went with Clint Eastwood. Oh, I honestly thought you were about to say Danny Trejo. Oh, Danny (laughs) (laughs) Trejo. Fuck, now he would, Danny Trejo would just, he wouldn't hit him with a snow shovel. He'd stab him in the fucking head with a machine. Shetty, and that would be the that'd be an interesting change yeah yeah he would just chop him up to pieces but i went with clint eastwood fantastic actor obviously but it's not much of a stretch because he's got the old man angry get off my lawn look to him obviously that yeah. he is kind of famous for i mean the thing that i liked a lot about old man marley was he had the look but when he spoke uh-huh. he, he was very gentle and i don't know if clint eastwood would ever sound gentle <laughs> <laughs> But yeah, so anyway, that was that was my call. Okay, I went back and forth between a couple of people and eventually I settled on 
a man named Charles S. Dutton. Charles S. Dutton, probably most famously, was the groundskeeper in the movie Rudy. Oh, okay. Who gives Rudy the advice. Um, he was in Alien 3. He had a TV show in the 90s called Rock. You were probably too young for oh, that. Oh, yeah. He's an incredible actor. He's old enough now that he could probably put on a beard and, and look a little bit gruffer. But so David Sutton? Charles S. Dutton. Oh, okay. Now that I look him up, okay. I see him. Yeah, he could totally be like the angry next yeah. door guy. He could look gruff, but yeah. I've seen him kind of do that sort of sweet mentor role. And he may not be as sweet voiced as you know the original kind of brought to the role but i think he can definitely play that sort of mentor role i like your call better than mine i just went really on the look more than anything with clint eastwood and like i would bet charles s dutton would do a better yeah. little bait and switch yeah. kind of thing i almost went with tony todd oh tony wow wow fucking candy man yeah <laughs> <laughs> holy shit that guy's voice is so fucking i know i thought i was like you know it's a little too scary yeah. <laughs> i was going back and forth between the two of them but i kept leaning more towards charles s dutton i was like you know what? I'm just going to go with that. Okay. I think, I think that was a better call. Yeah. <laughs> Let's move on to our two robbers, the wet bandits. And we'll start things off with Harry, with Joe Pesci's character. And actually, would you mind? I want to yeah. know what you said first. Here's what I want to do. I'm actually going to tell you both of them. Okay. Kind of just as a team. Yeah. I think that's a good call. I kept some ideals from the original and they needed to look a little bit differently. Joe Pesci was a lot shorter than Daniel Stern. You kind of get that almost Abbott and Costello sort of feeling with them, the kind of the short rounder guy. And I didn't quite go with the short rounder guy, but I did kind of go with the shorter guy versus the taller guy and someone who could play someone who could be smart, but could also play sort of the dumb role for Harry and then someone who could just play a bumbling idiot for mm -hmm. Marv. So my wet bandits are Kevin Hart as Harry and Johnny Knoxville oh. as Marv. Also, Marv gets beaten up way more than Harry oh, does. Yeah. Well established that Johnny Knoxville can take a hit. And actually, Johnny Knoxville has done some decent acting stuff. He can do over the top, I think, just fine. So that was my, my wet bandits were kevin hart and johnny knoxville okay i like those calls all right i'll give you my double for my harry i kind of wanted to keep that same mentality of kind of a small and large but also like the smaller person being the comedic but could play like the smart guy as needed yeah I also went with Kevin Hart. Uh -huh. <laughs> yes, Kevin Hart is my Harry. I think he'd be a really good fucking pick for it. Yeah. So yeah. And I could totally see him starring in that. And my Marv, I went with kind of like a, he's big, but he's also a rounder guy. Kevin Smart's small and compact. Right. And I wanted like my taller Marv to be kind of larger as well. Uh -huh. He's definitely plays bumbling idiot. And I'm sure he could do the physical side, not as much as Johnny Knoxville, but I went with Zach Galifianakis oh, yeah. as my Marv. Okay. So yeah. mine's Kevin Hart and Zach Galifianakis uh, and yours is Kevin Hart and Johnny Knoxville. I think those are two pretty solid solid choices. Yes, and I could see either one of those guys going in for different reasons. Yeah. If you wanted more comedy out of him, you would go with Galifianakis. Yeah. Um, if you needed more sort of improvised comedy or something like that, if, if you just wanted somebody who could take a beating. Yeah. <laughs> yeah, which we have. Marv does a lot and he does it very comedically, which Knoxville would do fantastically. Yeah. Good calls. I thought for a while we weren't going to have the same person, yep. but I'm glad we did, actually. <laughs> so that is our Home Alone. Let us know if you liked our picks, if you hated our picks, or if you think you had any better picks for your Home Alone casting. Please join us next time where we review the 1977 animated film The Rescuers, we review the animated show Chip and Dale's Rescue Rangers, and we do a casting of the Marvel Team Agency X. If you have any questions or any suggestions for movies or TV shows you'd like for us to review as part of your childhood, you can reach us at blastfromourpast at gmail.com, or you can find us on Facebook and Twitter at at blastpastcast, that's at 
Blast Past Cast on both Facebook and Twitter. So until next time, I'm John. And I'm Adam. And thanks for joining us. See you next time.